You're listening to the How and Steve English podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not so great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Megan Kelly. Hello. She's an ESL teacher who got started in South Korea and currently works in Texas. So stay tuned. Uh, before we get into the interview, as always, let me tell you about the latest things going on HowAndSteveEnglish.com. Some of you might know that Hal's been making a new travel English series. That's a really great resource if you want to use travel topics in an intermediate or high intermediate conversation class. He's also making some pretty interesting videos that go along with it with his dad. So um, it's pretty interesting. He's got his dad here in Korea and he's making videos and you can show those videos to your class as a good uh, pre-activity or pre-class activity and really get them warmed up and have a little small talk about that. Um, and yeah, if you like any of our content, make sure you join our membership, $9.99 a month. It's pretty cool. Got a lot of great resources. Your contributions help us make more. All right, Megan, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay. <laughs> um, really excited to have you on here. We talked a little bit before we started recording, and you've got a really, really interesting ESL teacher path. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here and, and talk about it. So when did you first hear about teaching ESL abroad? You know, I had, I guess it must have been over five years ago, five, six years ago. And I remember when I um, had started looking at it, some of the things, it just, when you go online and you first start like trying to figure out information about teaching ESL, a lot of it kind of seems a little sketchy. <laughs> So, it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. So you're like, you're like, wait a minute. I have to like a lot of the things you have to pay. They're like, oh, you need to pay this much money. And there's all these, you know, scam recruiters out there. So you got to be a little bit careful. So like when I had initially heard about it, I went online and I started looking at things and I was like, I don't know, this seems kind of off. But then my cousin, um, she actually taught ESL in Spain um, and she had used she had used a certain recruiter and she's like, you know, I know that they, I know that they work. I, cause I had really, I wanted to go to Asia and I knew that. Um, and she's like, I know that they, uh, I know that they go to Asia. So why don't you try them? And so it was about, it was almost just over five years ago that I had finally, you know, go finally started like getting good information and looking into it. That's a really good point that you bring up. The fact that everything seems so sketchy. You've got just a million websites out there with stock images and stock photos and kind of the same information on there. And before you know what a uh, a diploma apostille is, and I hope I say that right. I've been doing it for seven years. I hope I said that right. Um, it's really scary, though. Like even the things within the, the United States government seem kind of weird that you have to do in order to go abroad. Yeah, I mean, and the whole process, like... Now, like I remember going through, I mean, and it was, a, it wasn't an, it wasn't necessarily an easy, I mean, it was kind of easy, I guess, but there's just such a lack of information. I think now, um, now that, you know, there's so many YouTubers and there's so many bloggers in Korea. And so I feel like there's just been this like influx of really great information, which is awesome for new teachers that are coming out. But even, you know, like when I was originally going out to Korea, I feel like the only um, like really popular blog was the um, Eat Your Kimchi. 
And they had great information. But yeah, like going through the whole process, like getting the FBI background check, it's a very long process and it's also very expensive. And then they ask you for things that you've never heard of, like the apostle, like you're like, what, what is this? It's like this, this weird made up thing, but it worked out. It's really interesting that you mentioned uh, eat your kimchi. Is mm-hmm. that right? Eat your kimchi, eat my kimchi. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Eat Your Kimchi, and now they have Eat Your Sushi because they're in Japan. Yeah, that really dates us as far as ESL teachers in Korea. <laughs> so the, all the new people have no idea what that is, but all the kind of veterans, the people that came here between 2009 and 2014, know that as like the king and queen of the whole vlogging. Yeah. Atmosphere. Oh my God. They were, I mean, they still are. They're huge. And they have so, a really good website. <laughs> oh, what's that? They, and they have a really great website too. I, I used them a lot when I first moved to Korea to get all my information and learn how to make orders online. <laughs> I have to check that out again. I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> so that means that you came here about 2013 or 2014? It was July 2014 that I arrived in Korea. And some folks have really crazy first day stories, like their journey from their home city on the airplane and then their arrival at Incheon and then whoever greets them is sometimes really crazy. Hal, um, a fellow we know named Chris, and a few other people have these really, you know, kind of weird, whimsical tales. Do you have an interesting story about that day? No, I just, my time in Korea, it was like, five of, I was there for five years. It was five of the best years of my life. And I mean, it was definitely hard, but everything just worked out. And so I really felt like it was meant to be. I know a lot of people, um, you know, their recruiter says that they're going to meet them at the uh, airport and then like nobody shows up and they're just like on their own to get to their school. Um, but no, my recruiter was there. They were waiting for me. I got picked up in a nice car. It was like door to door service. I got dropped off at my new school. Um, and it was overall a really great experience. It was just all, I mean, everything was super new and everything was just really, it was really overwhelming. Um, and you know, Korea, it's a sink or swim environment. So I remember I, I landed and I was at work the next day observing the teacher that I was leaving. And I had one day to observe her and learn as much as I could. And then I had the weekend to myself to kind of prepare things. And then Monday, I was in there by myself with a bunch of (laughs) five-year-olds. Did you have any teaching experience before that? None. Zero teaching experience before any of this. And when did you realize that you were going to have to be the main teacher, the only teacher, the next day? Um... I knew, well, I knew pretty, I knew pretty early on. And in the interview, um, they were pretty honest about the the job and, and what I, and what I would be doing. Um, and I think I just went in with like a really positive and really flexible mindset. And I think that's something that's really important. So I was just, I was very go with the flow. So when I found out that day that I was going to be there by, by myself the next day, like it didn't really phase me at the time. I don't think I really understood what I was getting myself into. <laughs> a lot of folks that we talk to sometimes kind of have that, excuse me, kind of have that really shocking uh, experience that you just mentioned, just being mm-hmm. thrown into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after two weeks, you're like, uh, why was I, why was I scared? These kids are, these kids are awesome. <laughs> 
and then um you kind of you kind of regret being so scared in that first day or two mm -hmm. do you have any advice for new teachers who arrive here and maybe don't have that much experience but just get really stressed out on that first day or two of course and you know what i'm gonna be honest with you you said it was too for me I mean, I think I was feeling stressed out and weird. I didn't get over like that first initial hump of like feeling some kind of like, like feeling like, okay, I've got a, a hold of this until like three months. And then at six, you know, at three months, you've kind of done everything once. At six months, you've done thing, everything at least once and some things twice. So that was when I really started um, to get my, my footing and, um, you know that those first three months and I feel like this now too being a first-year teacher in America I just kind of feel like I just felt like I was doggy paddling and I was just trying to survive and um, keep my head above water and so I guess like my advice like my number one advice always is be flexible and be open-minded um, you're gonna you're gonna have especially in a hogwan setting you're just gonna have so many different things thrown at you um, and you really need to be able to think on your feet and don't sweat the small stuff. You know, you really got to, you got to think about what's important to you and pick and choose your battles. <laughs> um, but, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time my first three months, um, you know, back in the day, I didn't, my first job was amazing and my schedule was amazing and I didn't start working until one o'clock on Mondays and Wednesdays but I was in that office at 8 a.m every day for three months just putting in the extra time and the extra work really looking at my lessons and prepping my lessons um, and getting organized so that that way when I went into the class I wasn't feeling scared or overwhelmed or like I didn't knew or like I didn't know what I was doing I think it's really important to plan, 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 and you, you want to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, because you really never know what's going to happen. It's a very dynamic environment. That's probably the best advice that anybody can receive, because <laughs> a, a lot of teachers just don't lesson plan. They bring that student book in the class and think that'll do, but it really doesn't. No, no. <laughs> and you know what? I did that like my first... My first, again, because I had no idea what was going on and everything was just coming at me. My first week, I walked into the classroom not having looked at anything. And, you know, um, in, in every school is kind of different. Um, the school that I worked at, their curriculum was a little bit like there was a little bit more freedom in what you could do. I find that in Korea, especially like when the, in the Hagwon world, you're either like getting placed at a hogwan that's like a poly or I'm not sure if we should say names, but you know, they're like more cram schools and you have the script of like everything that you have to follow and there's not enough time to get through it. Or you're at a school that's kind of like loosey goosey. They give you the freedom, but as a first year teacher, you're like, I have 40 minutes that I have to fill and I don't know how to fill, fill it. And that's what it was like for me. So I literally went in on my first day, like not having really looked at anything, was teaching from the book. And then the kids sped through all of that information. They finished all of their workbooks and worksheets in 20 minutes. And do you know what I did? I played 20 minutes of Hangman after that, <laughs> which when I look back on, I mean, it's like a huge no-no, right? Uh, playing Hangman and especially, you know, 20 minutes of it. So... 
uh, that was kind of the real, like the one I had the realization that I needed to prepare more. And you know what? When you do put that extra effort in, the kids notice it. Um, and they start to take you more seriously and you start to have less behavior problems too. So it's an all around win. <laughs> That's so true. And there's so many things that you can just accomplish with a chalkboard or a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. It's a piece of paper. You really, people think, oh, I need a lesson plan. That means I need to print and prepare material and get my little scissors or my glue sticks ready. And that's kind of, kind of a little bit of an anxiety inducing effort for some people. I know it's a little bit anxiety inducing for me, mm -hmm. but yeah, just with a whiteboard and a plan and, you know, your warm ups and your cool downs, you really can, can really solve a really stressful classroom environment. Yes, I, I agree. And you're right. It doesn't take much. And, you know, you'll see, you know, the kids can, you know, they can be easily amused. You could, I mean, it could be as easy as like crumpling up some paper and letting them shoot hoops into the, the trash can as a reward or, you know, turning that into some kind of sentence game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I guess I missed one key point. What city did you end up teaching in that very first year? I was living in Gimpo, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's a suburb, right? Um, it's a, There's an airport there. So you've probably been to the airport, especially if it's, it's easier to fly from Gimpo to Busan. Um, so yeah, I was, yeah, I was, it's like 40 minutes outside of Hongdae. Um, and I was just looking online and they finally it took them it took them years i was waiting for it but they just opened their first subway stop there <laughs> so exciting things are happening there if you get placed placed in that city and you worked at a hogwan right from the very first day i did i worked at a ybm ecc now, for folks who are listening that don't really know about Hagwons and public schools, mm -hmm. Hagwons are your academies in South Korea. And there's a lot of different types, and they're defined by how nice their directors are and what type of rural or urban or affluent or low-income neighborhood they're situated in. Could you uh -huh. tell us a bit about uh, your Hagwon in those senses? It wasn't so it definitely I wouldn't even though so Gimpo is a sub like it's a suburb of Seoul. So it's it's not, I wouldn't call it rural, but it's also it doesn't have as much money as Seoul does. So you're starting to see a lot of families who, you know, maybe they they can't keep up with that Gangnam lifestyle anymore. So they're starting to they're starting to move to Gimpo because it's close enough, but the prices are a lot cheaper. So um, it's def it definitely wasn't like working at, you know, it wasn't like working at like a Deji or like a Gangnam Hagwon where you're working with like some of the wealthiest families. Um, but they definitely, they definitely were not poor and they definitely had, had money to spend. You know, the schools are like $1,000 a month when you're sending your kindergarten student there. If that gives you an idea. So... Your academy ran both a kindergarten and an elementary program? Yes, they did. What age did they cut off at? Middle school or high school? Well, um, middle school. They were they were trying, when I was leaving, they were trying to introduce more like Sunung and TEPS programs. So they were trying to get high schoolers in, but I would say middle schoolers is usually uh, where it would cut off. Were you the only native speaker teacher there? 
No, I was not, which uh, which was nice. Um, there was a team of six of us, if I remember correctly. Wow, how many different students did you guys have all together? Different. Uh, I can't. I couldn't tell you the amount of students, but basically how it worked was in the morning, you you were a homeroom teacher for a kindergarten class. Um, and I was the head teacher for a little bit. So because of that, I was the homeroom teacher for two kindergarten classes. So I was the homeroom teacher for five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And then there would be no more than 12 students um, in a class. And that roster pretty much never changed. So I was looking at, you know, maybe 24 students for kindergarten in the morning total. But in the afternoon, um, I taught so many different classes um, and so many different, like so many different, like I, like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we would have one set of classes. And then Tuesday, Thursday, we would have another set of students come in um, and we would teach 40 minute blocks. So I had probably, I mean, at least 50 students in the afternoon throughout the week, the different students that I was teaching throughout the week, I think. Teaching kindergarten here in Korea is something I'm actually not very familiar with. And it's a little bit of this mystery that I want to learn more about. We have some seven-year-olds in our academy just enrolled in our normal programs. Okay. Elementary school students. But I know there are, there's a completely different world of English kindergartens. And then what the native speaker's role is and then what the Korean teacher's role is is something that I really want to know about. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Oh, boy. Oh, where do I start? It can be a real, like... And you know, see, this is the thing, and I say, I say, it can be a hot mess sometimes, but it really, like, every academy is so different, and it's kind of like what you said before, like, it really depends on who owns it, uh, you know, and who who your director is, um, and that will kind of shape your um, your environment. I was really lucky where um, I. I got along like really well with my Korean staff and I think we did like a pretty good job of splitting things. Um, so for, and I hate to say this, but you know, a lot of the times um, the the native teacher is kind of thought of as the fun teacher. <laughs> um, and then the Korean teacher, so like you're, you're the native teacher is in there uh, basically to help primarily with speaking. Um, you know, speaking and listening. And then the Korean teacher, like their role is more um, like writing. They're very focused on writing. They're very focused on grammar and reading as well. Um, so I was the homeroom teacher for the kindergarten class, but of course um, I don't speak Korean, so I can't communicate with their parents directly. So you kind of have the situation where the native teacher is like, the face of the class um, and you know you have you know you have open class so the parents are coming in they're observing you they want to know what's going on um, and then you have the Korean teacher who does like a lot of the back-end work so um, they have to manage all of you know like all of their backpacks and make sure that everything is going home correctly they have to do all the parent communication and I mean, you know how that is at a hogwan. Um, that's no, that's no easy feat. Um, so they do, 
they do a lot of parent communication and, um, you know, managing the blog and sending lots of pictures and videos and taking care of like a lot of like the day to day, like administrative tasks. That's a whole lot of stuff going on at those kindergartens. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's uh, a hogwan, like a kindergarten hogwan in Korea is crazy. That's that's all I can say. There, There is a lot going on every day. I'm so interested in what you taught and then what the Korean teachers taught because I gave a really good effort to make just a seven and six-year-old's class recently, about mm -hmm. two years ago, and I taught it you know, using Genki English and then using a pre-A1 um, CEFR scaled book. But mm -hmm. perhaps more than any other parent, kindergarten parents have really high expectations. So even if you do, I tell this to academy owners all the time, even if you do a one hour or three hour a week program with kindergarten students, the parents won't be able to get out of their mind something like what you do, which is a full-time kindergarten program. Mm -hmm. So their expectations, whether they know it or not, are really high for that other style program. So I'm wondering how, and I've seen graduates, so kids who went through a program kind of like the one you worked at, mm -hmm. who are basically fluent, who can write better English than they can in Korea, who can yeah. write almost essays, I dare to say, and can read at like a B1 or higher English mm -hmm. level. So where does that happen? When does that, where and when does that happen inside those classes? You know, and it's, it's so incredible because, you know, I had students that were like that too. And I, I think, you know, you know, um, they, the, the, the children like that you're describing that can write essays at like the age of seven, you're like, oh my gosh. And yeah, their English is better than their Korean. Um, a lot of them are put into the system at a very young age where you know their brains are like sponges and um i like i said i was the homeroom teacher for the five-year-old class but in korea the ages are kind of different so they said that they were five but western age they would really they're really four and depending on like what time of the year they were born like maybe they were you know like maybe they had just turned four so they were kind of more like three-year-olds um so they're, you know, and just like us teachers, the kids are also thrown into an environment where it's sink or swim. They come in and they know absolutely no English. Um, but then within like three or six months, all of a the sudden they're reading and they're, um, they're speaking in full sentences. And it's, it's just incredible to watch because, um, I mean, it's basically just brain plasticity and the older, the older you get, the you know, your, your plasticity goes away. So you don't see that kind of growth when you're working with older students. Um, so I think really, I think the main thing is, is that those kids have been put in there at a very young age and their brains are just kind of like sponges and it soaks everything up. But it's also um, another important element of that is that, you know, this is not your average, like a hogwan is not your average um, pre-K scenario that you would find in the States. Um, I feel like, you know, us growing up, when we think of pre-K and we think of kindergarten, we think of lots of coloring worksheets and um, lots of playtime. The kids get, in Korea at a hagwon, the kindergarten kids, I mean, they're lucky if they get a 10-minute break within a 40-minute class period. 
they um th they're there usually from like you know 10 till 2:30 at least 2:33 um it depends and it's just hours of go 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 and you know hammering them with textbooks lots of songs and dance and lots of like readers theater so um I think, you know, even though it's it can be kind of a stressful environment, there's definitely results that, that come from it. Um, so yeah, I think to answer your question, and <laughs> the easy way, that was the long version, sorry. I think it's just because they're entering at such a young age and their brains just absorb faster. Um, and then also just because of the amount of time that they're spending there. They're there for half of their day and like I said, they're not, they're not playing, they're working. They're expected to be in a class. They're expected to sit in chairs and sit nicely and listen to the teacher and do a textbook. It's crazy. <laughs> that's so interesting. That's, that's a huge, that's a huge difference between, I guess, kind of the other programs that we've, we've worked at <laughs> just like for our own anecdotes, whenever we taught kindergartens, we had similar expectations, so parents who wanted the, the expectation that probably your parents had, mm -hmm. but were upset that the kids had to sit down and focus and and write for 10 or 15 minutes of the class time. So oh. I, I was, oh, go ahead. Well, the, and that's the funny thing, you know, you can never make the entire class of parents happy. It's so interesting hearing from parents about what they want and what they expect because they are never on the same page. <laughs> so, you know, for open class, which is if you are moving to Korea and you're working at a hagwon, it's something you'll probably have to do. It's when um, you teach a class and the parents come in and they observe you and they critique you and they critique their students and the school in general. And, you know, a lot of the parents would say, you, you know, you'd get parents that would say, there's not enough playtime. They're writing too much. They're working too much. I want to have more of this. I want to have more games. I want more like fun and engaging activities. But then you would get parents that would be like, there are, there's too, there's too much fun time. There's too many games and they need to write. So, you know, uh, that's a difficult part of teaching in Korea is, you know, managing, managing parent expectations. And you kind of just, you can't make everyone happy. It's really interesting. <laughs> it goes goes across the board. Yeah, I think that's something really important that people don't really talk about. The attitude behavior gap, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, when your customers say something, but then they behave a different way. And it's really pronounced in Korea, especially in the education field. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> you taught there for how many years? So I was at my Hogwan for about two and a half years. And then I switched over and I started working at a private elementary school in Seoul. So I moved from, I moved from Gimpo and I moved to Itaewon. I was in Gyeongdidan, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, and then, yeah, and then I was at a private elementary school um, and going from a Hogwan to a private elementary school was it was a fantastic switch um and i worked at a i worked at a really great school it was one of the best jobs that i ever had um and then if you're i'm not sure if you're what because you know in korea there's so many different types of schools which is also really confusing 
So I think, you know, most, most first year teachers, they start off at a public school or they start off at a hogwam. And a private elementary school is, in my mind, it was kind of like a, like a hybrid of both of those things, uh, the good and the bad. Um, but it's essentially like it follows, um, it follows the government's curriculum, but they have to, they have to pay to go there. It'd be like, you know, what you think of as a private school back home, not like, not an academy. Yeah, yeah, definitely for folks listening, it can get pretty confusing because the terms themselves, the semantics are, oh, what's that fancy word for the meaning of words? But there's there's a difference. So, for example, I always try to tell people the Korean word is chingu and the English translation is friend, but that's not actually the right translation because chingu just means somebody who's the same age as me. It doesn't necessarily oh. mean friend. You know, and I, I always just thought the Chingu was a direct translation of friend. So there you go. You learn something new every day. And I lived there for five years. Yeah, well, the, well, nobody older technically can be a friend and nobody younger can technically be a friend. Older. Yeah. yeah. So it, I guess it has a double meaning. It means friend and same age. And then yeah. Academy, too. I, I said this on a different podcast. When people hear Academy, they think of, you know, the preppy kids from a CW teen drama who go to the rich school or they think of the x-men um but actually when we say academy we were talking about an after school program like one or two hours in a pretty commercial building on like the second or third or fourth floor of a pretty by american standards pretty big urban building yes and it's kind of like a sylvan learning center I suppose. yeah I always tell my, and that's, that is like the best description. And I always tell my friends too, because a lot of them, like they have a really hard time imagining it. And especially like American teachers, they were like, well, what grade did you teach? And like, what was your homeroom? And you're like, well, I taught all of the grades. And they're like, what? You taught all of the grades? How did you do that? And then I kind of have to explain. I always say that it's kind of like a con academy, like in a, like a hogwan is like a con academy on steroids. And they're like, oh, okay, like I can, and Icon Academy is kind of like the Sylvan Learning Center that you, that, that you said. So that usually puts a good picture in their mind. But yeah, <laughs> it's not what you would expect. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I think if I can ask you about that private school experience, I've talked to a few people who had really good experiences at them. Mm -hmm. And I think um, most folks who ended up working there had to have a lot of uh, a lot of certification to end up working it, it was really hard for them to get that job did you find that process really difficult um not necessarily I think that Korea I think a lot of what happens in Korea um, in terms of finding jobs a lot of it is like based on who you know um, it's also the timing and a little bit of luck and I feel like if you just kind of like put out into the world like what you want um it'll it'll come but they, i mean it's definitely not again it depends on the school and it depends on the area um that you're that you're looking for it's definitely not really something that's available to first year teachers because generally speaking they want to hire teachers that are already in the country so that's number one and they also ask for two years experience 
Um, what I will say is difficult about it too, and this is why it's important to be in country, is that a lot of them, my school wasn't really worried about the certifications. Of course, if you had your master's degree, like they loved that. Um, I know that some of the international, or not the international schools, sorry, the private elementary schools, some of them, they do want to see some kind of master's degree or some kind of like CELTA or something, their certificate. Um, mine didn't really care too much about that. The big thing was, is that they wanted you, and a lot of schools are doing this now, they want you to come in and they want you to do um, a live demo in front at the school in front of all of the admin with the students that you'll be teaching. Um, so that was, I think the biggest thing for me, like that was a kind of a problem, especially because I was working at a hogwan. And when you work at a hogwan, like your hours are pretty tight. Um, and so they, I had to like figure out a way to kind of switch classes with people and make time work so that I could get all the way into Seoul, do this like 10 minute demo lesson for everyone to watch and then do the interview in person and then make it back to my hogwan in time to teach my classes. So and that perfectly encapsulates why people can't really <laughs> apply from abroad or just send their resume and hope that somebody gives them a ring because that's the expectation for yeah, applying and, for the job in a lot of different places. And they they probably like if somebody was applying from abroad, they they wouldn't look at the application and they're definitely I, they're definitely not ringing anyone up. You know what I mean? I mean, communicating with them even when you're in country can be difficult. <laughs> so yeah, so out of country. I mean, unless you've lived in the country before and you're coming back and maybe like you you know somebody that works at the school. But either way, like you'd ha you, you have to come in and do a demo and that's usually what gets most people and that's what keeps most people from getting the job is that they're either too scared to do the demo um, so they just, they don't come in or they can't make their schedule work so that they can come in and do it. Are the class sizes at a private school similar to the class sizes at a Hagwon? They're similar to the class sizes at a, at a public school. Okay. So you had 20 to 40 students in your class at once? Yes. Yes. Um, usually my school, it was never 40, but it was usually like somewhere like 26 to 28. Are the students more academically focused at the private elementary schools than they would be at the public schools then? You know, well, I never taught in a public school, so I'm just going off of what I heard, but I would say uh, I would have to say definitely. <laughs> I from what I understand, um the students that I worked with at the private elementary school um, I mean, they were some of the best and I love all of my, I love all of my students equally. I loved all my kids at the Hogwan too, the kinder, I mean the, the little babies, I, they have my heart. Um, but yeah, the, the private elementary kids, they are super competitive, uh, and they've been raised to be that way. So if you give them a test, they're going to want to have their score. And if they don't have a hundred percent, you better be ready to explain why, because if, if it's not a hundred, then they're not happy about it. Um, but they were, they were some of the most hardworking kids that I've ever met. And, um, even though they came from like, you know, uh, uh, you know, like very affluent backgrounds, they were very humble. 
and they were very respectful of their teachers and very polite and they they took the classes seriously for the most part in that type of environment were you able to do uh, student-based activities and kind of a student-centered classroom as well as you could at that hagwon uh yeah actually i think even more so at the private elementary than at the hagwon because the hagwon they i mean they will just micromanage you and I, i mean again and i always say this it depends on your director but they are so turned up about the parents i mean they just have parents calling them all day long complain 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 and so you know and you have cctv in your classroom so they're filming you they can go back they can look at things they can watch so the environment they want you they really want you to be doing things a certain way um and you know and it, it, it's whatever the parents have asked for at any given time um and so they're really like in your like at the hagwon they're really kind of all over you and and like why are you doing this how are you doing this and um at my private elementary school i mean there's so many class i mean it was first grade to 6th grade and there were um five homerooms in each grade so it wouldn't physically be possible for somebody to be coming around and micromanaging you that much there's just too many classes and there's too many kids um and then i was lucky where i worked with a fantastic administration team and they the principal um he was like very open minded and um my school was actually one of the i believe it was like the first school um to introduce a maker curriculum and so we had maker labs and whatnot and so they really pushed student based and you know like a lot of like project based and hands on learning and they gave us a lot of freedom like as long as as long as they trusted you and it, they gave you the freedom to do what you wanted in your classrooms and as long as the kids were happy as long as the students were happy and as long as the parents were happy and you weren't having any major complaints and you know they were doing well on their tests then they stayed out of your room then they were they were happy and we were also allowed to create our own after school programs which i loved so i got to create a model united nations program and then i created like a youtube star program where the kids um and my coworker my coworker came up with the idea and then i helped but we basically like we let the kids create their own youtube channels and we told them You can do whatever you want as long as it's school appropriate and as long as you're speaking in English. And it was um both both of those Model United Nations and YouTube Star were super successful. So, um and that was one of the reasons why I liked working in that environment because because I had so much freedom to do what I wanted. And how long did you end up staying there? I was there for 2 years and um I probably you know I I could have stayed there for a lot longer um the second year that I was there I actually um I enrolled in a program and I got my master's degree and you've probably heard of it because it's a popular one it's uh through Framingham State University I don't know if you've heard of it I think I lost you there for a second. Oh, for our listeners, <laughs> sorry. For our listeners still here, um, <laughs> we go. There's occasionally 
hiccups as we do these great international <laughs> interviews. So just hang in there with us. Uh, um, um, but you were mentioning your master's program? Yes. And so, and the one that I did, it's called, it was um, a master's of education in uh, Tesla, and it was through Framingham State University. Um, and it's a very, uh, it's a very popular cohort that a lot of people um, have done uh, that are living and working in a abroad but they want to get um they want to get their degree from their home country and they don't want to do it online so the way that i did it it was a year-long program and it was set up so that we could do classes on saturday for like i think it was like 10 weeks and then the rest of the time the professors flew in um from the states and we did like intensive two-week periods of study um oh, oh, during our vacation so the program was kind of made to match the um vacation program of a public school and the private elementary school system follows that schedule as well um so my last year of working at that school i i I was working full time and then I was also getting my master's degree and then I graduated. And, you know, when I came to South Korea, I had, I told you before, I had absolutely no teaching experience. And I always said growing up, I was like, I'm never going to be a teacher. I hate working with kids. Well, guess what happened? I moved, I moved here. And then, you know, within the first three months, I knew that I loved Korea and all of a sudden it was like, wow, I really like teaching and wow, I love working with kids. And at, you know, some point at my time in Korea, I just said to myself, I was like, this is my career. Like, this is it. I love doing this. And this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I think this happens with a lot of teachers in Korea. Um, but then they're like, okay, wait a minute. I'm here. I'm teaching in Korea. Um, but I have no credentials and I have no certifications. <laughs> um, and so I said to myself, okay, if I'm going to make this my career, um, I need to go back to the States and I want to go back to my home country and I want to get my teaching license. Um, so that is why I left Korea. And that is why um, I left my job, my, my job, even though I loved it. Um, I wasn't growing the way that I wanted to grow anymore. Um, and also, um, when I was getting ready to leave, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you remember it because it probably affected you. Well, maybe it didn't, but um, with the new president, they made teaching in first and second grade illegal within the public school system. And uh, because of, and it also affected uh, private elementary schools as well. And because of that, um, they cut back on a lot of jobs and a lot of people were just kind of like fired overnight for, for no reason. Um, and that was kind of a wake up call to me where it was like, wow, like I'm really comfortable in Korea. I love my life here. But if this were to happen to me, like if, if something like this were to happen again and I was on the chopping block, what would I do? Um, I wouldn't really have anything to fall back on and I would be scrambling to find a job. Um, so that was when I kind of said to myself, okay, this is why I want to get, um, I want to get my master's degree and I want to get my license. And once I do get my teaching license, I'm on an intern license right now. I'm teaching in Texas. Um, I would love to teach, um, abroad again. And I would specifically like to work at an international school.
So and why did you choose that route instead of going to a Korean master's program? Um, I think it's really, uh, I had talked, I had like, I had talked to quite a few people about this and especially because I was going to be moving back to the States, kind of like the rule of thumb that people will tell you that it's really important to get your master's degree from your home country. Korea is fantastic and they have some really fantastic schools. However, that degree doesn't necessarily translate in America. Um, That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so a lot of the universities here really don't... Man, there's so many problems sometimes. I, I'll be negative about it, I guess, but <laughs> I think it's so important for people who go to university here that masters they really need to know that the education might not be that great there might be a lot of cramming there's a lot of issues with the staff there too oh Some yeah might, yeah the, stealing your your academic work copying your work bullying uh forcing you to go out drinking late at night there's a lot of issues and then the degrees like the standing of the universities aren't that high but they're still pretty expensive so unless people want to learn korean i usually tell them uh, that master's degree try to yeah. avoid it i am totally on the same page as you and i think like and i think a lot of people you know they would also agree with us and um i went to high school um in in canada and my old my old assistant principal, he actually, you know, he worked at an international school in Hong Kong and he is like very familiar with, you know, the IB curriculum and like working in that kind of environment. And so he was kind of my mentor during this process. And, you know, I, I told him, because originally I was looking at Korean universities because there are these great programs and there are these great scholarships um, for foreign students. And he was just like, you know, Megan, it's all really great. But when you, he's like, you know, what happens when you decide that you don't want to live in Korea anymore? Like that could totally happen. Um, and when you try to take that degree somewhere else, it's just not as valued. Um, so, so he was like, it's really important that you get your degree from your home country. And I thought, that was really great advice. And that's what I ended up doing. And I was lucky that I was able to do that um, while living in Korea. And now that I am in the States and I do have my master's degree, um, it, you know, especially in academia, it's really important. Like most, especially like if you want to have any kind of um, career in administration or get a promotion, you have to have that degree. And because I have it, I get like an extra stipend and I get paid more. So, so it worked out well, but um, but yeah, I think that if I, if you go to a Korean university, it, yeah, I, it's, just, it's just not as valued, unfortunately, because of the quality and, and whatnot. Very, very diplomatic way of <laughs> giving good advice here. I'm very proud of us today. Um, so we we spent a lot of time talking about uh, your experience at this hagwon mm -hmm. that had a kindergarten and an ele uh, and elementary program, kind mm -hmm. of in a, a nice part, a nicer suburb of Seoul mm -hmm. um, that a lot of people I think can relate to. And you've explained this career progression to the private elementary school in Itaewon, which is kind of the white whale 
of teaching. You know, getting that job in Itaewon is what everybody's gunning for. And now you're teaching in Texas. And I'm really excited to hear you compare um, ESL in America versus ESL here in Korea. Because I think we'll find some things that we expect you to say. Mm -hmm. And then I think you might have some surprises for us in terms of what's better or what's worse. Well, so... We'll see. So, you know, it's so funny because I feel like as teachers or no, I know for myself as a teacher, like an ESL teacher in Korea, you get slammed with a lot. And I think a lot of people, you know, go to Korea expecting it to be, oh, I'm just going to teach English and I'm going to travel and this is going to be easy. And I think that's like the biggest misconception. Um, Maybe it's easy for some people, but actually like it's a really it's a really hard job and you're working with kids and it's something, you know, you need to take it seriously because you know, you're shaping their future. Um, so, but, oh my gosh, I like got on my soapbox for a second there, but yeah, um, it's, it's a very hard job. And I kind of thought, I was like, you know, I can't believe how difficult and how stressful this is sometimes. And this would just never happen in America. I said that to myself all the time. And I know my friends would always say that, like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is just, this is just unacceptable, blah, 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 blah. Well, (laughs) I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but actually, you know, the stress and the, the workload is, I would say it's even more um, teaching teaching in the States um, and, and working at a public school out here. Uh, the workload is, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Um, and so just to kind of like describe like what um, I'm doing, um, I so I'm working in Texas. Um, in Texas, if you are interested in teaching ESL in the states, Texas is one of the best states to probably be because um, they they have they have a lot of bilingual programs um, and they have a high need for ESL teachers and ex- specifically for teachers that have had that international stu- uh, international experience because that's where their their students are coming from. So whereas in Korea, you know, their first language was Korean, obviously. Um, Now I'm working with students where their first language is Spanish. Um, So in the morning, I work with a class. It's called, uh, so basically the way that it works in Texas is that um, once they enter the public school system and their first language is Spanish, they enter a bilingual class. So they'll be with a bilingual teacher and then um, they'll, half of the class is taught in Spanish and half of the class is taught in English. Um, and it's really an incredible program. I know in Korea, uh, they don't, I didn't really see a lot of bilingual programs. And you know, like the rule of thumb is always, don't speak Korean in my class. And you have to like constantly tell the kids that because administration never wants them speaking Korean. Um, but you could never tell a student in the States, like you could never say, oh, stop speaking Spanish or oh, stop like speaking your home language because that would be like you, you know like impeding on their rights um and the bilingual programs and the esl programs for that are really like uh they're really special and it's really really incredible to watch because the kids kind of just go back and forth between two languages and then like if they can't figure something else out in english like they just say it in spanish quickly and everyone's like okay and they move on but i felt like i was always kind of like fighting with my students to be like don't speak Korean, don't speak Korean. And I feel like that would just make them speak Korean more. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Oh, I, I definitely have. And then I we have to do push-ups and 
punishment gets doled out. Uh, yeah. See, that would not, yeah, like that would not fly here. And I actually, I really like it because I, I don't agree with that whole, like, don't speak Korean thing. Like, I don't, I don't think that's good for their, for their overall, for their overall learning. And I think it just makes the problem worse. So watching these bilingual programs and seeing these ESL programs and seeing the kids just go back and forth between the two languages is like really awesome. Um, I think too, though, like a lot of the differences that I see, you know, um, especially like number one, I wrote down and I had told you this before, I wrote down some bullet points that I think would just be fun to talk about. Like number one difference is definitely in the curriculum. So in Korea, um, you see a lot of these cram schools and you see a lot of these kids where they get their list and they like memorize their words and then they take their test and they get 100% on their test. But if you were to actually ask the kids to use the word in a sentence, I don't think they'd be able to do that. Um, I don't know if you see that at all. Oh yeah, we. that's one of the things as one of the the folks who starts an academy thinks I'm going to change the world. You get rid of those vocabulary tests and then the moms complain about it. You bring it back just for show. Oh. And um, we, it ties into our curriculum. So they actually use it in our classes for output and then just have a normal vocab test. But for middle school cramming, yeah, a month of every semester, they have to spend just cramming words into their brain. Yeah, and then they just kind of, you know, it's just like this, they they blurt it out onto the paper, you know, they do their test and then, and then they have a whole nother set of words that they have to memorize for the next, the next test. And they're just kind of moving from one thing to the next. And so like one of my things in Korea was, it was like, okay, they're memorizing all these words and their spelling is fantastic, but then they're not working with those words enough to really understand their meaning and um, to be, you know, they, they just put it on paper once and then that's it. They, they don't come back to it. And that was something that always kind of frustrated me. And, you know, a lot of the times when you were meeting with parents, they would be like, well, how can I increase their vocabulary, their vocabulary, their vocabulary, and like more spelling lists. And it was kind of like, no, like we need to pump the brakes and like make sure that we're understanding this level before we go to the next level. Um, and it just always felt like in Korea, like you couldn't really do that again because of like parent expectations. But what's really great is like in the States, like cramming and like memorizing things like that is actually like really frowned upon, especially like in a bilingual or an ESL program. Um, and they really, they really stress like we're not just reading to read, like we're, we're reading to think. And I think sometimes, you know, um, it, it can be like the like the whole writing process. It can be really fluffy. It's like, well, just think, just brainstorm. Like, what do you want to write about? Just like, don't worry about spelling. Just like, get the get the pen to hit the paper and just write as much as you can, just to kind of like see what you like writing about. And um, I feel like you know that would never really happen in Korea, especially like in the environment that I was working in, where it was like no, like they need to be able to write this essay and every single word needs to be spelled correctly. And it doesn't matter like what they want to write about, like they are going to write about this. Um, the curriculum is like very, very black and white. Like there's not really any grayscale. And especially like when it come, came to testing, like whenever we had to make tests, like the answer, you know, it had to be there. 
Um, the kids aren't really like learning how to like infer and make smart guesses um, and read between the lines. Um, but that's something that the American American curriculum like really stresses. And that's like a really important part of it is being able to kind of look at things and come up with your own ideas. And your idea isn't necessarily wrong as long as you can support it and find the evidence for it and explain why. Um, so that's something that's something that I that I really enjoy because I feel like I get to see like the thinking process a little bit more. Whereas in Korea, like you're kind of just like rushing, depend and again, depending on what kind of school you're working at, you're kind of just like rushing through textbook pages so that you can put a big red circle on it so that it can go home to the parents and it can like look like something is being done, if that makes sense. No, that's that's great. I mean, that's something that we talked about with Kat Sten recently on the podcast mm -hmm. and Madeline, and they were talking about the show of education is more important than the actual substance of education. Yeah, like the like, actual learning. About. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, Korea is like, I mean, it's like keeping up with the Joneses times 10. You know what I mean? Like the, these moms are very competitive and they're reading this book at that hagwon. Like, why aren't we doing this? And like, they don't really care that their kid can't do it. They just want to have their kid to have that book so that they can brag about it at like the next coffee meeting. Yeah, yeah. That's such a, <laughs> I mean, that's such a good point. It's really intense. And then the substance of even the competition, it's like, oh, my son is able to read and comprehend what's going on in this book. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about just the fact that it seems like this kid is <laughs> able to read and comprehend. Everything, everything in Korea is image. Everything is yeah. all, it's all about saving face. It's all about image. So yeah, so that's, and like another really funny thing too is, you know, especially when you're working with younger kids, the parents don't want to know the truth. And it, it goes with that image. You have to be, um, you know, really diplomatic about like what you say and how you approach the parent. And if you were to, you know, in Korea, if you were to tell, you know, tell the parent, well, you know, your child is really struggling in this, they take offense to that and they kind of, they get angry. And especially if you're at a hagwon, well, if you tell them something bad is happening, they're like, well, peace out. I'm gonna go to your competitor next door and give them my money to hear them tell me good things. So you kind of get like stuck between like a rock and a hard place. You wanna be honest and you wanna help the kid, but you also wanna keep the customer. So I just started doing my parent-teacher conferences um, in the states and it's just it's so crazy like it, like how different of an environment it is when i would do my parent teacher conferences in korea i would get ready for like a like i would i mean you had to prepare 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 i get all these papers together and like it would be a 30 minute you know a 30 minute conversation but here like you know um in the district that i'm in the parents are like they're pretty relaxed and they're like you know what like my kid is just happy to come to school and he likes you and he didn't want to come to school at all last year. So the fact that he just wants to come, like, I'm happy with that. <laughs> That's an improvement. And then, you know, a, a lot of the parents, you know, like one parent came in, she gave me a hug. I was like, oh my God, like what alternate universe am I in where like, the, you know, I'm not fighting the parents. Um, they're actually like being nice and they're supporting me. And, um, you know, that they said, they go, you know, you know, Mr. Dwyer, you've told us a lot of things, but 
you know, you told us a lot of good things, but we want to hear the bad things. And we want to know, we want the honest truth about what is going on in here so that we can work on it at home. And that's not something that you hear very frequently. I mean, I didn't hear it very frequently um, when I was working, you know, uh, in Korea. So that was re that was definitely uh, refreshing. And, you know, if there are behavior problems in the class and, you know, I have a lot of behavior problems um, in my class, the, the things that you're dealing with um, in the classroom in the States can be a lot different, especially, you know, the, the children, you know, the, the background is just totally different. You know, you might be working with kids where, you know, they're dealing with like not only alcohol abuse at home, but like drug abuse um, and eating. And, and violence and you don't always like when you're teaching in Korea because you can't communicate with the parents and the Korean teacher is um, you don't really know a lot about their background and a lot of like what's going on um, so being able to talk to the parents it's like information overload so a lot of what happens at home it ends up coming out um, in the classrooms but when you do talk to the parents and you do call them and you're like well you know your child was really disrespectful today for like A, B, and C for example you know I had some of my fourth graders, they started a food fight in the cafeteria last week and I almost lost my mind. <laughs> um, it was probably like one of the most upset I've ever been. But when I called the parents and explained what happened, you know, they didn't try to like place blame on me and say, well, no, like my child would never do that. They were like, oh, that's really bad. You know, they've done that at home before. So I totally believe you. And, you know, I said, they're gonna, they're gonna have lunch detention. And they were like, that's, that's a good punishment. I mean, that suits what, what happened. And one mom even was like, is there a way that she can get an all day in school suspension? <laughs> she asked for a harsher, a harsher punishment. I was like, no, um, the, the lunch detention will be fine. So that's kind of something that's interesting too. And, and that's a nice change um, is to be able to speak honestly with the parents um, to try to get the kids the, the support that they need at home and then to also like not only be able to speak honestly but then to like have them believe you and be like yeah we agree with you and, and we respect you and we support you um, and that's a really nice feeling and that wasn't something that I always felt in South Korea that's really awesome to hear about that's <laughs> probably Kyochun Chicken and a few of these other delivery restaurants are <laughs> getting so much money for me and my wife because when we get home we were stressed <laughs> out from dealing with parents and you know the korean thing is to eat something spicy when you're stressed yeah. out. <laughs> so we eat a lot of spicy chicken because of these moms and what you just described would make our lifestyle so much better right so I, really I, I know <laughs> i mean you know not everything not everything is perfect here um I, we, uh, I have to be to school. We start our day at 7.15. Um, the kids come in and we actually, we eat breakfast in the classroom. So they're walking in at 7.15 and then we teach in something called like block periods. Um, so they're with me from 7.15 until about 10.10. And, um, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, doing our English language arts, our reading and our writing, and we're doing, um, our, our guided reading groups and whatnot, which is another part of the curriculum that I really love. But we're, we have that time, like that's a very, that's like almost three hours 
that I'm just in the classroom with those kids with no break. And then, you know, they go to gym and then they have recess. And then I get like a second set of kids until the end of uh, starting at like 1245, we come back from lunch and I get a second set of kids and we go until about three o'clock. Um, so I really only have like one block of planning time, like one, like one 40 minute block. And so a lot of the days, like, you know, I, I usually like, I wake up at like four 30 so that I can, <laughs> I can like plan what I'm going to do for the day because I, I mean, three hours, it's a long time to be in a class, um, with, with the same kids and to make sure that you're coming up with activities that are engaged and that can keep them going for that long. And then, you know, you're pulled in every direction. There's so many meetings, um, you know, special education is really big out here. So you have, you, you know, you're going in, there's a lot of paperwork. Um, there's a lot of accommodations that you have to be making in your class. And there's things that you have to be doing legally so that those children can get the support that they need. And in theory, it sounds really wonderful, but and, and it is, but it's a lot of work. So a lot of it is like me waking up at like 4.30 and like not getting home until seven o'clock at night. <laughs> The hours, the hours are insane. And it was one thing I thought that like I would be coming to less work because Korea, you know, Korea is known for having like the longest, the longest days, but I'm actually, I think like working more and planning more here than I ever was in Korea. The crazy <laughs> so parents are worth it, I think. What was that? The, the crazy parents are worth it compared to those work hours. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting do you feel i'm sorry go down the list keep going keep going i didn't have anything you said so many interesting things and now that i'm thinking about it you know there's a lot of this public conversation going on about you know how we treat our public school teachers how we how we incentivize them to be better and how so many teachers have to buy their own equipment and like you said you're not being paid or you're not being paid and you just frankly have to work an insane mm-hmm. amount outside of the classroom. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? How does that affect your life? I guess. It makes me angry. That's like one thing because, you know, I didn't realize, I didn't realize how good I had it in Korea, especially working at uh, the private elementary school. Um, you know, I worked in Korea. I worked my eight thirty to four thirty, and work very rarely followed me home. And again, a lot of that had to deal with like, you know, when you're when you're in Korea, working in Korea, you're not necessarily their homeroom teacher. It's basically this like, you know, I feel like you know, like English at a public school or a private school or a hagwon, like it's a pretty like unregulated field. Like they're not going to be taking a standardized English test at the end of the year. And like their school's funding isn't based off of those results. Um, But that is the situation that you're facing in America where like we have in Texas, we have the star test. And like if your kids aren't doing well, like that's that's a big deal and that's really going to affect you. Um, but yeah, the whole thing, I didn't, again, I didn't realize again, I went off, I go, I went off on a tangent. I do that. Sorry. Um, I didn't realize how good I had it. You know, the work never really followed me home. I didn't have to do all this communication and really, you know, care about like grades, like, you know, tests and whatnot. Um, and coming to this, it's just like, Oh 
my God, like there's so much that goes into it that you don't realize. I mean, having to communicate with the parents is a big thing. I mean, and it's not necessarily, like I said, like my parents are really nice and I'm lucky, but it's time consuming to like, you know, have to sit there and talk on the phone for 30 minutes with each parent and kind of counsel them about what's going on in class. And then on top of that, you have to do all of your planning and you've got to uh, prep your materials so that you're ready to go uh, for stations. And then, yeah, like the amount of money that teachers spend on their classrooms is insane. And I am not having any of that. Like that was one thing in Korea, you know, my school had a budget and you could kind of ask them to buy things, but and they were and they were good about it like the classroom was pretty much like already set up for you when you came in but um that wasn't that's not really the case in the states and you know now the competition is high like against teacher you have teachers that are like really passionate about what they're doing they spend i mean they spend weeks setting up their classroom like painting walls <laughs> um flexible seating is a huge thing now so like People are buying their own rugs, they're buying their own couches, beanbag chairs, wheelie stools. Um, so so yeah, like one thing I, I've told everybody, like I'm a first year teacher. I've just, you know, moved from Korea. I spent six months traveling the world after I left Korea. Like I am financially rebuilding myself right now. I am not buying any beanbag chairs or any of this other stuff. If the school wants me to have it, then they can, you know, they can buy it for me and they can put it in my classroom. Um, but it's really, really hard not to spend your own money. And it is kind of unbelievable, like how much of your time they expect you to dedicate and kind of like, you know, like volunteer for or do things unpaid. And it's kind of crazy, like how willing some people are to do it. Um, I, 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 I've told all my coworkers and they're all amazing people. I said, I have limits and I have lines as to like what I'm willing to do. And I think it's really important to set those boundaries up early on. I think that's one of the things that most teachers would look at their Korean coworkers and kind of scoff and kind of ridicule. Like we talked about earlier. Oh, that would never happen in America. Oh, mm -hmm. in America, we would, oh, what? You have to go to an after work dinner? We respect each other's time in America. You have to buy this person a present? We respect each other's, um, <laughs> we respect each other's income or, you know, personal finance or your independence when it comes to those decision-making processes. But everything you just yeah. described is just like a different yet mirrored version of that. And that's what's so funny. And, you know, that's what my boyfriend and I have talked about a lot. Like, it's and we were saying it's like it's the same but not if, if that makes sense like and, and yeah you're right like you think like we you know in Korea it's like yeah you have to it's like oh I have to go to this dinner and like nobody in America is ever gonna make you go to a dinner like ever and no one is ever going to like expect you to like buy a gift for someone else but then it's like there's other things that are expected so it's kind of like the, the same situation, but like different scenarios, I guess, if that makes, I don't know. It's like, it's crazy. And the reverse culture shock is real. <laughs> I want to talk about that reverse culture shock idea, but you just mentioned something a second ago <laughs> and it 
it ran out of my brain. I have no idea where it went. So let's talk about that reverse culture shock. <laughs> if you remember, just let me know. Um, yeah, you know, it's so funny. I thought, you know, moving and I, and I don't know how your experience was, but moving to Korea was actually probably I, I've lived. I live in Austin, Texas now. This is my seventh city that I've lived in. So I've moved a lot. Moving to Korea was the easiest move that I have done out of all seven of my moves. Um, and what's one of the best things about teaching in Korea, this is what I would say to a lot of people that are thinking about going out, um, is that Korea has one of the most welcoming expat communities that you will ever find. I showed up in Korea and I had like 20 friends within like two hours of being there. Um, everyone is very supportive and very friendly and it's kind of like this mentality it's like okay like we're in this foreign country like it together like at least like we're gonna do it together like we have each other especially you know when you don't have your family and whatnot your friends and your community become your family and that was something um, that was really awesome about about moving about moving to Korea it was just so much fun and every day was an adventure like good or bad um moving back to the states has been relatively easy but you know because i was in korea for so long it's like you get like the things that annoyed you when you first get there you get used to it and then you come back here and you're like oh my god okay like <laughs> Now I need to like reprogram myself all over. Um, and you know, being in a new city, um, it's not as easy to make friends as it was in Korea. Like that's something that I'm learning. I'm really lucky because my brother lives here. And so I just get to spend time like reconnecting with my family. And that is so awesome. But like outside of that, like it can be a little bit harder to like actually like make it takes time, you know, to like make those meaningful relationships and friendships where I felt like in Korea, I was just there and like life was a party. Um, and I knew like a million people. Um, so yeah. And then of course, you know, America is just so big. There's so much space. Seoul is amazing because I felt like I just had the world at my fingertips and I felt like I could do like everything. It's like, you can get on the subway, you can get on a taxi, you can walk everywhere. And it's just not that way, especially in Texas. Everything is so big and so spread out. You have to have a car to get around. Like even just to cross the street, the streets are so big and so wide. You need a car just to cross the streets sometimes. Um, so, so getting used to all of that can be really crazy. And then, um, yeah, like even... Even work-wise, you know, I, there's things, so like in the, in, in an American school system, you have so many different people that you are um, communicating with and responding to. There's so many different job titles and there's so many different directors and whatnot. And they are constantly coming into your class and walking through and like observing you and observing your students. And that wasn't something that happened in Korea a lot. Like at the Hogwan, like you had the CCTV. So like you knew that they were watching you and like they would like, they would talk to you about things that happened in your class afterwards. But I didn't feel like, like, and you would have your open class and then that would be like 40 minutes like where everyone is watching you and observing you. 
Um, but that was kind of it. But in this situation, like where I am now, it's like I get a walkthrough from like the superintendent or some kind of like curriculum director, like two some like at least once a week and sometimes like two or three times a week. Um, and you know, in Korea, when someone is coming into your class and like they're observing, you know, your job kind of depends on that. Um, and so, but here, like in the, in the States, like being a first year teacher, they're not coming in there to like blow up your spot. They really just want to make sure that you're okay and that you're getting the training and the support that you need. Um, and that was something like in Korea, like I said, it's sink or swim. I got one day of training <laughs> before it was like, okay, you've got a warm body, like you're in the class. Um, and this is just a completely different situation. Like they're not just going to let you go in there and see what happens. Um, they they want to know what you're doing and they, and they want to help you be better. Um, so it's been kind of hard to like wrap my mind around like, oh my God, like someone's in my classroom. Like I have to tell myself, Megan, this is an open class. They're not here to critique you. They're here to help you. So that's been something, you know, that's, that's been going on in my, it, it, with me. That's kind of, that's kind of hard uh, to get, to get over. So yeah, there's just, uh, there's just reverse culture shock. There's just, there's just so much going on at the same at, at the same time and it's it's all just kind of crazy and um i i guess basically it's like i'm so happy to be back home and i'm so happy to be with you know my family and to reconnect with people that i had lost touch with um but every day it's like i kind of feel like i lose like a little bit of like my expat self and i lose like a little bit of like who i was in soul and that makes me really sad um, because I, I, you know, I love my experience there. Um, but I know that I'm here for a reason and like I am continuing to grow. I am continuing to learn. And like most importantly, like I'm becoming um, a, a better educator. So it's like this crazy experience where it's like you're really sad because you're losing parts of yourself, but you're also really happy because you've gotten some things back and you're growing. And so it's just this like really weird combination of feelings. It's like you're feeling all of the feelings at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's just very emotional if that if that makes sense. You said something really interesting that I don't think I've ever heard somebody express, which is when you go back home, you can really feel that time in your life and the person who you were abroad just slipping mm -hmm. away. And... Yeah, I don't... <laughs> sorry, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, and I know it sounds like it's like I, I like it's like sometimes I like get teary when I say it. Like it's it sounds so sad, um, but that's kind of like the reality that of it. Like anyway, you're you're just you're 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 in a different you know you're you're in a d different country. You're like you're not an expat anymore, and you're like a little bit more independent. You can do things yourself like people aren't speaking a foreign language around you all the time and so like things just kind of like naturally and normally change and yeah you're just in a different environment so you're going to be a little bit of a different person maybe it's cheesy but maybe it's when you're back home even you know i live like you in many different cities mm -hmm. even when i leave friends behind back in america or move to mm -hmm. 
moved to Joplin, Missouri, or moved to New York, or moved to Philadelphia. It didn't really mm-hmm. phase me that much. But mm-hmm. moving back home temporarily from Korea to the United States was somewhat gave me the blues. I guess there's I just learned a Korean word. I'm a Korean language student. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna butcher it. Ki uni opta. Ki uni opta. I think mm-hmm. is what it means. It kind of means like just down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that really, yeah. So I think that I'm sure you'll be dragged here at some point because it always drags people back abroad. It 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 and you know and I left I left Korea on a high note. I you know because I had such a good experience there. Um, you know a lot of a lot of people leave Korea like angry and like feeling like something you know they're like i'm so sick of this teaching english i'm so sick of this and da, 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 da. and they kind of leave on a bad note and i i didn't want it to be like that i had a really wonderful experience like i said it was the best five years of my life i went there um i loved the country i loved the people um i ended up leaving with my master's degree a newfound career um and most importantly, too, like I ended up, you know, uh, like meeting meeting my boyfriend there and, and falling in love. And I just feel like uh, the country gave me so much. So I really wanted to leave on the positive note, which I did. And so the door is open. And it was funny. Even my principal is like, call it my old principal is like talking to my friends. He's like, where is she? Is she coming back next year? <laughs> um, so yeah, going back to Korea, going back to Asia in general is like definitely, uh, it's definitely a possibility. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave that out. And I, I think you're right. Korea has this, it has this odd way of always pulling you back. There's something really special about about the country, uh, and I don't, I don't know what it is exactly, but um, it just has such a special place in my heart. And... I remembered my question. <laughs> Um, there's, I think there are about four or five huge cultural differences. And I know we're kind of in the denouement of this conversation, so I'll let us go quickly. But I'm really curious about your opinion. Um, for me, you know, we always hear about shame versus guilt culture. And Asia has a lot of shame-based cultures in it. And Korea is mm-hmm. one of them. Where the guilt you feel of doing something bad um, isn't really that big of a deal. That's not what motivates you that much. Mm-hmm. It's the shame of being seen by other people t- that your appearance is somewhat bad. And that's what motivates these moms to want their kid to have the same book as the other hagwon, even though yeah. the kid doesn't know. Mm-hmm. It's the ma- main motivation. But you said something about America that seemed to be very shame-based, which was there's competition amongst the teachers for creating a really awesome classroom and investing your private money and your private time into the teaching job. That seems very kind of just shame-based I could see my co-workers doing that to each other uh, I don't know you know it's hard because there's a lot going the working at an elementary school can just get really crazy because of the politics and the dynamics that are involved and like yeah the teachers are competitive I don't know I don't know if I would describe it as a shame-based thing but I think it also just has to deal with, you know, being in the, being in an elementary school environment, you know, like my school is 98% like the staff is like 98% female. Um, and so that's really awesome sometimes because you have these women in there that like really care. 
Um, you know, they really want to make a difference in, in their lives. But, you know, women um, can unfortunately also be very competitive and like very territorial. Um, and, you know, everyone kind of has like their own way of doing things. So I'm not sure. It's like everyone, you know, everyone wants to have like, you know, a nice classroom. And maybe like maybe that's also like maybe it's just me. Like maybe I'm just competitive. Like maybe I take especially because I'm a first year teacher. And so I get like very anxious. So I'm like, oh, my God, look at these teachers with their nice classrooms. Like, is my classroom that nice? Like, like, what does administration think of me? Like, am I doing an okay job? Like, I want to do a good job. So um, like, I think a lot of it comes down to, and maybe it is shame, but like, you know, comparing, like, just comparing yourself to other teachers and kind of questioning yourself, like, am I good enough? And like, you know, am I doing a good job? And am I giving the kids uh, what, what they need? Um, and then, you know, you have a lot of, um, there's a lot of like, you know, there can be like a lot of workplace bullying. I think one thing that's different, especially working in the Hagwan, you know, the foreign teachers, like we all had each other, like no matter how much the parents upset us or like maybe where we weren't getting along with our Korean co-teacher, um, we always had each other and we always supported each other, but you don't like it, it. It depends at the school that you're at, but at the school that I'm at right now, like you don't really see that. Like the teachers are all kind of working against each other. Um, and so I said, you know, this is the first time where I'm dealing. It's like, I can deal with bad behavior from the kids. Like that's one, that's one thing, but this is like the first time where I'm really dealing with bad behavior from the adults. So I think maybe like shame plays a role in it, but I think that there's like other things that are going on too. That's a much if smarter that, way to view it. <laughs> if, I mean. if that makes it, I, I hope that I, I hope that I know that I'm just kind of like verbal. I've just like verbal diarrhea for like an hour and a half and just kind of like spit, like spat so much out. So I hope that, that came across okay and that that makes sense and some somewhat that made sense and this whole hour and a half was pretty awesome i think <laughs> anybody here would be so thrilled not only just to hear another take on the familiar esl career mm -hmm. in korea but especially how you took that and you ended up back in america and you found a career and then you can really show us what's better and what's not so great about teaching mm -hmm. esl we're having a job in the United States. And I think a lot of people take for granted their assumption that, oh, America's great in every regard. <laughs> and especially <laughs> the workplace environment. And yeah, working 4.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. is tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and hopefully I think, you know, as I become more familiar with the school and the curriculum, like I can already kind of tell um, that it will get better over time. And one thing that, you know, we do have to look forward to, I have 10 days off for Thanksgiving and I'm going to get all 10 of those days <laughs> and I'm going to get to spend it with my family. And then I'm going to get two and a half weeks off at Christmas. And so I'm not going to have to work Christmas Eve or anything. And I'm really excited about that. And then we get another week for spring break and then we get the summer off. So there, I mean, I feel like, you know, I have talked a lot about, about a lot of the negatives, but um, the vacation is, is amazing. And um, 
you get you get five sick days and you get five personal days. So basically you get 10 days. And you know, in Korea, it's like, God forbid you ever take your sick day, man. I mean, some schools are okay with it, but some of them, I mean, they'll come pounding on your door and hunt you down. Like, and people will like lose their job over like getting sick because they couldn't show up to, to, to the classroom for a day. Um, that definitely doesn't happen here. Like you can put it like your days are your days and you can take them. So that's something like I'm really looking forward to having my vacation. And I took my first sick day for the first time in years. And I felt no guilt and no shame about that. And it was a fantastic feeling. <laughs> I can't imagine what that feels like anymore. That must be so great. <laughs> And you know what? And the, the other thing too is the my coworkers. I said, I go. I'm not gonna be here on Monday. I'm taking. I, I'm taking a mental health day. And they fully supported me in that, which was also that 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 was awesome. And that's something that might not happen in Korea. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of positives and, and negatives too. I feel like I've been like super negative, um, but. There, there's a lot of really great stuff going on as well that, I, that oh, I'm really happy about. <laughs> you haven't been negative at all. I think there's just obviously um, this conscious effort by people to put everything in a good light mm -hmm. when they're here. But, you know, when they end up pouring the soju or that 2,000cc pitcher of beer, <laughs> they start getting into the familiar rants about why teaching ESL in Korea or anywhere is, you know, a pain like a real pain in the tuchus like they are talking about their directors and their weird classes and the mixed level kids and the parents so it's really refreshing to hear that yes what they say what we say at that table isn't exactly that accurate oh it isn't such a peaches and cream lifestyle teaching back home so i think it's really yeah. important yeah and i would say you know if people if you are teaching you know abroad you know enjoy that and especially you know the mixed levels thing that is not something that just goes with teaching ESL and teaching abroad that is an everywhere everyday classroom thing I have some kids in my class in my monolingual class um, that have been in the you know been in the system since kindergarten I have some of them that are reading at a fifth grade level and it is fantastic. And then I have others that are in fourth grade and they are reading at a second grade level. So, you know, I, I know that the teachers, the teachers in this, uh, in Korea with like teaching English, they always want to get on about, I can't believe I have this kid in here that he's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they want to talk about the levels in the class. Like actually the levels in Korea are a little bit more accurate than like what you would find in regular classrooms especially because you know you know i've got 20 kids in my class they are spread they are spread across the board and whereas in korea at a hagwon you know i only had i only had to manage tops 12 kids um and their levels i mean sometimes there'd be a little bit of a change but for the most part like they're pretty on so that's not you know that's always something that the teachers and you know i feel like esl teachers abroad want to get on is the levels but that's just that is such a myth like that's just not true at all you're gonna you're gonna have different levels no matter where you go that's part of being a teacher that's really important advice because that's i guess for me the levels are based on that kind of show for the parents so that's what really gets underneath my skin 
Um, yes, and that's true, and I totally understand that. We're getting long in the tooth, so I guess let me ask you, can you give some really, really great advice? And I think this might be um, a good opportunity instead of advice for new teachers. Can you give some advice for teachers that have been here for a while and they're really considering how do they get on with this career as an ESL teacher without having to be an employee at a hagwon? So we often talk about opening up study rooms, opening up academies, but you have two really interesting things that you've done. You've worked at uh, the private elementary school and you've gone mm -hmm. back home to work at public schools. Can you give some advice to those people using your experience? Yeah, I think, you know, the best thing is to really, and, and this is what my mentor said to me, like really think about like where you want to end up and, and what you want to do because there's so many different ways, there's so many different programs out there. And I think, you know, just doing the research and like figuring out like what I wanted to do, like took more time than actually doing what I wanted to do. Um, so definitely kind of like sit down and like map out, map out your options. Um, you know, for me, like I knew that I didn't want to open up. I, I knew that I didn't want to open up my own hogwan or my own, my own study room. Um, so it's just kind of like, okay, like I know that I want to be a teacher and I know that I, I want to continue to travel. And I know that I, you know, I'm very nomadic. I'm going to be, I want to be able to have a job that allows me to get up and move. And so, um, that, that went in like into my thinking process a lot. And then another really important thing, if you are thinking about, um, you know, making this a career, um, and, but you're not really sure, like you can't work at a hogwan or you don't really want to, uh, work. You don't want to, you don't want to go back to the States. Um, there's a lot of programs that you can do online that are very reputable. Um, I went, I'm doing a program, it's called Texas Teachers, and I did have to come back to the States to do this. But I know that a lot of people that are working in um, private elementary schools, they do a program that is based out of Florida. And um, they're able to get that, you know, all you have to do is fly back to the States to take the teaching test. But otherwise, like you can do all of your hours abroad. And that's, that's a really great way to get licensed. Um, and make a career out of it without having to leave the without having to leave the country, um, and you could even probably do that if you were working at a hagwon. So I think it's really important to just kind of think about what you want and then research research your options, see what's available to you because there's actually a lot out there that that you wouldn't realize. You have some states and some schools offering some really amazing programs, and talk to people. Put that information out in the world, especially in Korea. It's such a small environment. And like, you'll be having a conversation with someone and they'll be like, oh yeah, like I know somebody who did this and let me put you in contact with them. So like, don't be afraid to like ask for advice and network because that was something that really helped me um, get along with my career and my time in Korea. That is really great advice. Well, um, <laughs> Megan, I guess stay on the line here. I'm going to stop recording in a second. But to all okay. of our listeners, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed us talking about Megan Kelly's time here as an ESL teacher. And uh, I hope you got a ton of great information about what it's like to reintegrate back into the United States and find a job there. Um, Megan, is there any way that folks could get in touch with you, 
um, if you have any questions or maybe you have a website or a blog that you'd like to share with them? I do. I actually, I have a blog and it is called, uh, it's with Megan Kelly. Com, so you guys can feel free to check that out. Um, you can always contact me there. And then I'm always, um, I'm, I always do like a lot of stories and I post a lot on my Instagram, which is uh, just at with Megan Kelly. So you can feel free to follow me there or message me there. Um, I'll always get back to you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you.